Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Just for a moment. Colossians, chapter 1. I want to pick up with a vital aspect of biblical Christianity, which we touched on from this passage last Lord's Day. Here in Colossians 1, in verse 16, we read, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is indeed the Creator. This coming from that text that we read from Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14 in the church to Laodicea, where he tells them that he is the beginning of the creation of God. It is not that he was the first one created by God, but rather that indeed he is the beginner of creation. But read on. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now listen. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of this church. He is the head of every church. Look back a couple of pages to Ephesians chapter 1, towards the end of this chapter. The Apostle Paul again says, in verse 19, What is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He has brought about in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is the head of his church. This is a foundational truth of our faith, which is unfortunately very much ignored in our day in many places that call themselves church, where you have pastors thinking that they know how to do things better than the Word of God. I've been involved with churches that were run by deacons, churches that were run by choir directors, churches that were run by the head of the women's ministry, the W. MU, as it was called then. When you try to teach a church or to bring to a church the truth that it is not you, it is not me, it is Christ who is the head of His church. Now this is what we have in mind as we turn to Revelation chapter 3. If you would turn there in your Bibles, please. As Christ addresses the church in Laodicea, He does so as the one who, who is the head of the church. And as we saw back in chapter 1, he's in the midst of his church. 
so he knows personally what his church needs. Because he's there in the midst. You know, people, our God is not an idol. How many times do you hear God speaking through the prophet Isaiah about the wickedness of having idols? Who have eyes, but they cannot see. Ears, but they cannot hear. They can't move. They can't do anything. And people bow to them as if they can deliver them. Our God's not like that. We worship the what? The living God. The God who is omniscient. Who knows everything. And the God who is omnipresent who is everywhere. So as Christ addresses the church in Laodicea, he does so as one who's there, who knows what they're doing, who knows what they're going through. And as the head of the church, he has authority to tell them what they need to get right. And as he did with the other churches that we have seen, he tells them the good things that they are doing, but he also tells them where they need to change or to improve. And our whole purpose is that through the years and through the centuries, even as Paul said in Ephesians, not only in this age, but in the age to come, he is here in our midst. And he sees what we do. And he knows what we do. And he therefore knows what we need. And being omniscient God, he knew it all along. So he gave us his word to go by. Not the thoughts of preachers, but his word to govern our affairs and to follow him and to go by. This is a basic foundational principle, even as we read here in the book of Revelation, Christ speaking to his church. He does so because he has authority to do so. And we, as followers of Christ, are to heed what he says. Now, with that in mind, since we began this study in 2009, looking at the seven churches addressed by our Lord here in the book of Revelation at the beginning of the year for the last six years and now seven years, I thought it would be good to bring to some of you and to all of us really, some of you who were not here, but to all of us, a bit of a review. So for the next several weeks, I'm just going to touch on some of the previous churches that we have looked at. And I'm going to begin with the first church. So if you'd look back to chapter 2 and our Lord's address to the church there at Ephesus. So I want us to remember that this church, Ephesus, was in many ways a good church. Chapter 2, verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, in other words, the midst of the church. And remember, there were more than seven churches, even in that region. The word seven is used as a term of perfection. He walks among his church. I know your deeds and your toil, and your perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put 
to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. The church at Ephesus was doing a lot of good things according to our Lord. They had labor and toil and perseverance in the truth. He says to them, in this you're doing well. They were intolerant of sin. And they tested people who came to their church to speak to see if they were so. To see if they were true. And they would not let false people speak in their midst. He commends them for their discernment in this regards. But then he says this in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So here is a church that was very active, very religious, doing a lot of stuff. And perhaps we can commend them for the fact that they even had sound theology. However, They left their first love. Where once they understood the work of Christ for them and all that He had done for them, He died for me. This was important to them. Today, now, after some years perhaps of serving and following, with all of the distractions and with all of the pagan influence that was in this region and area, they had grown a little weary and left their first love. Where once they loved to worship Christ and were excited about going to church to worship the living God, now perhaps they struggled to stay awake. Or maybe even struggled to get there were to get there on time. Where once they were excited about Christ and all that He had done, now it's kind of like ho-hum. He's so familiar. These things are so familiar. And they had lost their love. Where once their walk with Christ and their communion with Christ was close, They strove for sanctification and holiness. And now, well, you know, I'll get around to reading the Bible when I can. It's just a little sin. It's not that serious. Where once they knew the awe and the wonder of Christ and who He was, now it's just going to church. They had left their first love. Whether they were dulled by the love of the world or the cares of the world, whether dulled by the legitimate needs of life, or by the lack of devotion, what had happened was, where once Christ was the most important, seeking first His kingdom, now they were more or less second place to them. The application that we drew from this church in 2009, I bring to you again this morning. Beloved, we must never allow anything 
to come between us and the love of our Savior, the love of Jesus Christ. We must constantly keep before us not only sound theology, but sound theology without a heart and a love for Christ that is genuine and real is merely being the frozen chosen, and I have no interest in that. I am very familiar with a number of churches who fall into that category, and I don't like it. We must have the heart for Christ, the love for Christ, which translates to the love for His people as well. And so not only do we have the doctrines of grace, but we have the grace of the doctrines. We must have both spirit and truth sound doctrine and a heart for Christ. No matter how sound your theology or how many your works may be, you must have a love for Jesus. Think with me, please. And don't ever forget. This is our Savior. This is the Son of God who left glory and came and dwelled in humility among men. This is our Savior, the Son of God, Jesus, who lived a spotless, perfect life, sinless, offended no one, sinfully, then who was subjected to spitting, Mocking, scourged, crown of thorns, being beaten. Spikes driven through his wrists and feet and hung upon the cross as his blood dripped. And he did so out of love for you. We must never lose sight of the love of Christ who first loved us. We stick to the truths of the gospel. Tenaciously we stand by them and His word. Oh, but we must never lose our love for Christ who did all of the things that we read in the Scriptures. He is our Savior. He is our love. There is no one that we can put before Him. We cannot forget who He was. We cannot forget what He did. We cannot forget His love for us, and we cannot lose our love for Him. Now we turn to the church at Laodicea. To see what Jesus said to them. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to chapter 3 of Revelation. And we'll pick up now with what our Lord says to this church. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write. The Amen. The faithful and true witness. The beginning of creation of God says this. And we've gone into some of that. The, the way that he describes himself 
to that church. We looked at all three of the things that he uses to describe himself. The amen, which word means truth. He is indeed the truth of God. He is very much true in everything he says. When Jesus says truly, truly, it's amen, amen. And so he is indeed the truth. He is also, according to the scriptures and in the Greek, the witness, faithful and true. He is a witness of God's law. He is a witness of his own divinity. And he is a witness of God and who God is. If you see the Son, you see the Father. He is a faithful and true witness. And as we saw last Lord's Day, he is indeed the creator God, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, this is what he says to the churches. And for that, we begin looking at what he says in verse 15, as he says, I know your deeds. We don't want to go any further. Stop there for a moment. I know your deeds. The head of the church, the true omniscient God, knows you. He knows the work of the church. He knows the deed of the church. He knows what our church is like, what our church does. I know your deeds. And we have to live and worship in the light of the fact that our God knows everything about us. He knows our thoughts. He knows even your motives. He knows if you are right in your worship to Him. As I said a few moments ago, He's not an idol. He's the true God. And He knows all about us. And I would say here, He certainly even knows what men preach. And that rests on me. And how important it is for me, because I will give an account to Him for what I bring to this church. But I think of some men and the things that I hear them say, and I don't think it will go so well for them on judgment. You think about some of the things that men are saying from pulpits. If you send me money, you'll get wealthy. If you come down here, I'll knock you on the head. You'll fall down and and wallow around in the front of the church. And this is somehow worship. He knows what goes on in the churches. And so men with responsibilities who lead churches have to answer the question, do they focus merely upon how big we are? How many people come? Or how we can get more people to come? Or do they focus upon the Word of God and the truth of God? Because this is what the Scripture teaches that they are supposed to focus on. Preach the Word! As Paul said to Timothy, sound doctrine, historic gospel, preach the truth! That's what we're responsible to do. The rest we leave to the sovereign God of heaven and earth. But do these men strive to please men? As we see so common in our day? Will they strive to make people happy? 
just want to make sure everybody's happy when they leave our church. Just make sure they're feeling okay and you'll be okay and I'll be okay. All they do is try to please men. Or do they try to please Christ? Or do they try to please God? Do they run from sound theology? Or is God's Word preeminent? The point is, God knows. God knows. I had one who came and lectured when I was younger, and I heard him speak. And one of the things that I recently heard him say was that when you go to a church, you can almost immediately tell what it's like. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you go to church and you're pretty excited and you go with your Bible. And as soon as you get there, you realize, I could have left that in the car because they don't even use it. Or you get in there and all it is is rock and roll. And a preacher tells stories. I've told you of the account of my visit to a local church here a few years back. I was appalled. This is one of the largest churches in this area. They never even used the Bible. There wasn't one of these. They didn't need it. And it was just good time rock and roll. And you know as soon as you go in what it's like. Christ knows too. That's the point. Christ knows what your church is like. And what a challenge to us that Christ knows what we are like. Christ knows how we worship Him and what we strive to do. May we always strive to honor Him. That's why those of you who are here on Wednesday nights know that we set aside the first part of our prayer Asking that God would be exalted and glorified in our church. Because that's what we're here to do. Worship Him. But we go on from here. He says to Laodicea, I know your deeds. And look what he says. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. And again, I'm not going to go any further right now. Do you notice something lacking with Laodicea? Those of you who have been here for all of the churches will notice that with Laodicea, he had nothing good to say. In every other church, in the first six churches that he addressed, he always had something good to say. Look back to chapter 2, even as we saw from Ephesus. I've already mentioned this, but... Here in Ephesus chapter 2, verse 2, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. Look at verse 3. You have persevered and have endured. He said good things about them. And then, but you've lost your first love. But with Laodicea, there were a lot of good things that they were doing. Look down to verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. As he speaks to the church in Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews, but are not, but they are of the synagogue of Satan. I know your tribulation. I know what you're going through, but you're rich. Smyrna was a good church. 
Look down a little bit further, down to verse 13, as he addresses Pergamum. To the angel of the church at Pergamum, verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. We'll see that in two weeks. And yet you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. And so they had that, that they held fast to his name. He does go on to say things against them, but they were doing some things right. Now you go over to Thyatira, down verse 19. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and your deeds. Look at that. Now you look over to chapter 3. Doesn't have a whole lot of good to say to Sardis, but verse 2, wake up and strengthen the things that remain. At least there was something that remained. So they had something at least that they were doing well. And look look down to verse 4. And you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they walk with me. And Philadelphia. And he speaks to Philadelphia. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door. Philadelphia was also a good church. They did a lot. Verse 10, because you kept my word. You kept my word. And remember, we looked at how important and how vital it is to keep his word. But now look at Laodicea. I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold nor hot. You're lukewarm. He doesn't have anything good to say about Laodicea. Nothing. Not one person. Not one person remained in that church that was kept from sin or was following Jesus. At least he doesn't mention them. This was a church that thought they were rich. Verse 17. That thought they had become wealthy and were in need of nothing. They thought they had it all. They didn't have the most important thing that a church could have. Christ. And so he says to them, nothing good. Nothing that they were doing good. He points to no one. And then he goes on to say here in verse 15 of chapter 3, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. But then he goes on to say they're lukewarm. We're going to talk about that next week. What do you think he means, though, when he says to the church, you're cold, you're not cold. But what does it mean to be cold? It would be the question. Okay, they're not cold. What does that mean? He's not talking to them about the body temperature. My wife, even though we live in Florida, can be freezing cold. But that's not what he's talking about. Now, the word in the Greek simply means cold. There's no trick here. But he's talking not about their physical coldness, but rather their spiritual coldness. So when you think about that, who might be spiritually cold? He's speaking of their spiritual condition, which suggests that they were cold, completely cold towards Christ. Who's that? 
That's a lot of people in our day. Atheists, pagans, men who openly hate God. Men like Stephen Hawking. Everybody reveres this guy. Maybe they have sympathy for him because he's a cripple. I don't, I don't deride him or anything because he's a cripple. I don't wish that on anyone. But just because he's in a wheelchair and obviously has some intelligence doesn't mean he's right. He's a pagan who hates God. That'd be one that's called. Richard Dawkins and other atheists who openly speak against Christ. These guys that put up the billboards on the side of the road that are anti-Christian and support atheism. They spend so much money to prove something that doesn't exist, doesn't exist. But these are the men that are cold towards Christ. Men who are unconverted and haters of God. As one put it that I read, they're openly profane, grossly scandalous, like heathens. That would be those that are cold, those who have no concern for God or His Word or His Son. Now, there's a lot of people like that. There's a lot of people like that. A lot of people going up and down the road today, they have no concern or care for God. They hate God. Their only thing they're concerned about today is a football game. They don't care about God. No concern whatsoever. I'm really happy someone said to me, oh, is that today? But you know what the context of this is? It's not of an individual. It's of a church. It's of a church that is cold. So what kind of a church is it that is a cold church? Just like I said, churches who do not care about God, who do not care about His Word, who do not care about sound theology, who make no pretense whatsoever about trying to be evangelical or trying to be sound or trying to glorify or worship God. They're just churches in name only. They're buildings that have steeples, so they're called a church. And there are a lot of them where people just go through the motions. They kneel when they're supposed to kneel. They stand when they're supposed to stand. They do this kind of stuff. You know what I'm talking about. World religions who have long since grown cold. Cold towards the things of God. And people just come because it's time to go and they leave as soon as they can. They don't even try to suggest or speak about the fact that they're Christians because they're not. Cold towards the things of God. Cold towards the things of Christ. Cold towards the Bible and God's Word. There's no truth, there's no power, there's no zeal for God. They're just a social church, a church in name only. And again, there are multitudes of these. So we go on then and see what he says next. 
as he says, you're neither cold nor what? Hot. What do you think hot would be? Well, I can remember when I was uh, first saved, there was a lot of people who talked about, man, he's on fire for the Lord. He's on fire for the Lord. Of course, in that context, in the context when I was uh, young and new in the faith, they were talking about something actually that was a heresy. They were talking about the higher life movement. They were talking about spiritual Christians as opposed to carnal Christians. You know, carnal Christians, right? I think they go to the church in Laodicea. <laughs> actually, there's no such thing. But anyway, here, here's these, this guy that actually gives some semblance of striving to live for God, striving to live a holy life, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, and to them, they are super Christians, spiritual Christians, as if there's some kind of a Christian that's more Christian than another Christian. But you see, that's what they had to do when they invented the carnal Christian. And this whole trichotomy thing fits right into this. Well, they're saved people, but they look like they're lost. And then there's saved people who are saved and who are spiritual. So they're the super Christians. And they're on fire for the Lord. I don't think that's at all what Jesus is talking about. In fact, I know that's not what Jesus is talking about. Do you know who would be hot in consideration of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel? Every true Christian. Turn with me to that passage we read a little while ago in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 11. Zeal for Christ. Hotness, if you would call it that. Is a characterization of every true Christian. It's Christianity 101. And unfortunately in our day... We've gotten so far away from seeing what a real Christian is. He's had to become a super Christian. But look what Jesus says in that text that we read. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. What? I asked you when we read this before if you believed it. Do you love father or mother more than Christ? Do you put your relationship to the things and the people of this world above your relationship to Christ? And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You think this is easy? This is not easy. I loved my mother and father. They were lost. And I had to go my own way in terms of religion, in terms of following Christ. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. But do you think that was going to change me? We have one in our congregation right now whose family is trying to, I think, rescue them from Christianity. Get them out of that zealous church. Bring them back to the good old Catholicism. Don't do it. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me 
is not worthy of me. Do you even begin to realize what that would have meant to the people that Jesus said it to? They knew exactly what it meant to take up a cross. It meant death. And so you, if you are to be a true Christian, one who is worthy of Christ, which is all he's talking about, a true Christian is one who is willing to die for Christ. And daily we are to take up our cross and follow him. He who has found his life will lose it, And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. You lost your life for Christ? That's being hot. You're more interested in the things of this world, in the things of this life, in how big a house you can have, how big of a bank account you can have. And again, none of those things are sinful. None of those things are bad or wrong. They're blessings from God. But who do you seek first? Because if you're pursuing materialism, that's not being a Christian. If you've lost your life for Christ, that's being a Christian. Not a super Christian, but one who strives for sanctification and holiness and godliness before worldliness. This is what Jesus says. Do you believe him? This is is one who is hot. Look over just a page or two to chapter 13. Now, I don't have the time to go through everything that our Lord says here, but you know the parable of the sower. And I'll just look through it quickly. Verse 4, He sowed some seed fell beside the road. This is verse 4, chapter 13. The birds come and and ate them up. Others fell on rocky places when they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up but because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out, and others fell on good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let me ask you this. Which one of those is a true Christian? Forget your carnal Christian theory. None of them are true Christians except the one that the seed fell on the good ground. Look down to what our Lord says. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and he does not understand the evil one snatches it away. Verse 20, the one in whom the seed is sown on rocky places, he hears and immediately receives it with joy, but he has no firm root. When affliction comes up, he falls away. Verse 22, and the one in the seed is sown among the thorns. This is the one who hears the word and the worries of the world. The deceitfulness of wealth choke the word And it becomes unfaithful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty, but he bears fruit. There are so many passages in the scripture that we can turn to to show that the normal, typical, 
honest, true Christian is one who bears fruit, is one who takes up his cross daily and follows Christ, is one who seeks to be godly and holy, who reads the scriptures. It's not a super spiritual Christian who does that. It's every Christian who does that. Every true Christian will be hot for Christ in that sense. He's on fire for the Lord. I hope everybody says that about every one of you. I hope they see a difference in you. Because if they don't see a difference in you, if they don't see you on fire for Christ, there's a good chance you're not saved. But I want to look at another text. If you would, just look over again a couple of pages to Luke chapter 9. Because time is fleeting, I just want you to look, if you would, please, down to what he says in verse 62. Jesus said to them, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Plowing is what? Hard work. The Christian life is not a life of ease. It's a life of striving every day to put aside and to put away sin. Striving every day to please God. Plowing in the fields to bring the gospel truth. Planting seeds. It's hard work. But if you stop, you're not fit for the kingdom. That's what Jesus says. One other text here. If you would look all the way over to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Listen to what Paul says in verse 13. We're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Who's He talking about? Christians. Every Christian! Not special Christians, not super Christians. Every Christian is one characterized by being zealous for good deeds, a people who are seeking to purify their lives. This is a person who is described by our Lord in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 15 as hot. Hot! But once again, when our Lord says this here in Revelation 3.15, it's in the context not of an individual, it's in a context of the church. But we know that churches are made up of individuals, so you are to make yourself a self-appointed committee of one to be hot for Christ in the church. But he's talking about a church which is hot. Now, Laodicea was neither cold nor hot, but what do you suppose a hot church would be? How would that be described by our Lord? Well, you look back at some of the things that he said to the previous churches, and you take away the bad things, and that would be a hot church. A good church. A church that strives for pleasing Christ. 
and not pleasing men. A church that strives to glorify Christ and to honor Christ. A church that seeks to bring sound doctrine that teaches Christ. A church that strengthens its members in the truth so that when they get out into the world, they'll be able to stand firm for the things of Jesus and not be swayed by the false doctrine and the false teaching in our day. A church that is hot for Christ is a church that will love Christ in spirit and in truth. Do we strive for that? I pray that we do. Do we pray for that? I know that we do. Are we that? I hope that we are. This is a a hot church. Wouldn't that be cool? No. Wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't that be good if people said, that's a hot church? That would not be an insult. And it wouldn't be cool. It would be a good thing. A church that strives to exalt and honor God, putting Him first in all things. Understanding that He's the head of the church and that we go by what He says and what He says is found in His Word. I pray that we are a church like that. And I tell you with empirical evidence, there aren't very many Narrow is the road that leads to glory, and there are few that are on it. And that includes churches. And what we're going to see described by our Lord regarding Laodicea, you will see many other churches today. Now, I deny the teaching of some in dispensationalism that this, these churches depict epochs. These were real churches. These were churches that were there right then. And Jesus was addressing them. But as I said in the beginning, I do not deny that they will be pertinent. What he says to these churches will be pertinent to churches in every era, including our own. And there are a lot of churches like this one in our day. Next week we'll look at that, but as we close this morning, which church would you rather be? Cold or hot? I know you don't want to be lukewarm. I don't want to be cold. I don't want to be lukewarm. God help us to be a church that is hot for Christ. Let's pray.